Thank you all so much for being here today. Uh, my name is Alex Bendixson. I am the Public Programs and Education Coordinator here at the Hirshhorn. Um, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to the exhibition co-curator, Miki Yoshitaki, who will be moderating this Friday gallery talk. Thank you, Alex. Um, thank you very much for coming today, everyone. Um, this is Days of Endless Time. Um, it's part of our 40th anniversary that reflects our museum's commitment to explore, exhibit, and collect moving image art. Um, and it follows an exhibition that we had in 2008, um, The Cinema Effect, uh, which examined the pervasive language and the rise of the cinematic in contemporary culture, the ways in which artists com uh, compel or challenge suspensions of disbelief, um, rendering the lines between reality and illusion indecipherable. Um, Days of Endless Time expands on this notion of cinematic, but also focusing more intimately on how artists approach forms of temporality and duration in more sustained and attenuated manners. And the show counteracts this kind of condition of the ever-increasing desire for hyper-connectivity um, of social media and the fast-paced 24-7 uh, reality and also the effect nature of digital media. And instead, it, it yearns more towards the more palpable and tactile forms that we are experiencing the world. Um, some of the artists in the show uh, test the bounds of the body, performing in extreme conditions, in immersive environments, and also reconsidering keystones of 19th century romanticism, um, namely updating the traditions of the sublime, um, the picturesque, and landscape in order to investigate more um, on meditative forms of perception. And here today we actually have five artists, and so I'm going to just give a, a brief intro of um, the beginning of the show, but I really would like to, it's going to be a moderated session of um, having the artists speak about their works here, and then um, about five, ten minutes per um, uh, work. And the artists are Seabrunt Versteeg, um, raise your hand, um, Clemens von Vettermeyer, David Clairbeau, Platform, which is uh, Roberto Taroni and Anna Maria Martena, and Matthew Weinstein. So we'll just kind of go um, in the direction of the show, and then um, we'll, we'll kind of um, take it casually. So we'll take questions at each point of um, the talk. So here we have um, an artist named Sue Maitzi, and it, it's the opening for the show. Um, one of the themes for the show is this notion of a cyclical experience of time, and this is a Luxembourgian artist who is uh, trained as a cellist, and she is playing against the Swiss Alps, and as you listen, um, you'll see that the sounds actually echo um, against the landscape and um, so she's really taking this notion of the uh, sublime into a more sonic um, exploration. So some of the works um, the themes in the show is really encounters this notion of um, the sublime, but also um, centrifugal or um, notions that of artists who turn against the rotation of the earth. Um, there are um, in the next piece. Uh, which is an Israeli artist, Sigalit Landau. You'll see her body actually um, performing within this spiral of uh, 400 watermelons in the Dead Sea. And um, it's very much this uh, body of land that is bordering um, 
Jordan, Palestine, and Israel, so it's a very political um, area, but also a very uh, much evocative of um, Robert Smithson's spiral jetty. So we could just keep walking. And here, the Dead Sea, which is um, the highest concentration of, of salt water. And so these watermelons were actually used um, or um, grown here. It's, it's, it's very, very salty and has these thin rinds, but inside is very, very sweet. And so she, um, she deliberately uses these uh, watermelons to evoke these um, different dichotomies of um, the primordial and the political, but also these gashes um, that you'll see um, from the very, very um, deep red that comes out of the watermelons. And um, throughout the show, you'll see some of the artists do um, appear in their videos. And so, um, for example, in um, further on, you'll see Guido van der Verve, who is an artist who traveled to the North Pole and um, slowly rotated every six seconds, took photographs. And the work actually is an animated um, um, video of, of comprised entirely of stills in which he rotates um, against the rotation of the Earth um, in these very extreme climates. And so there's this notion of testing the body's limits in, in the landscape here. And this is for us a kind of reaction towards um, trying to um, reperceive these more material um, when, when there is this kind of ephemeral notions of digital media changing, um, you know, going back into uh, nature or the landscape to kind of rediscover um, one's uh, re experience of materiality and the world. So we're going to skip over to uh, Sebrin. Here we're walking through um, Douglas Gordon's Play Dead, which is one of our ex, um, primary collection, moving image collection works from our collection of a, an elephant that um, had been filmed in Gagosian Gallery, um, taking cues of um, directional cues that, as if he's turning over and um, as if he's an actor. And you can see different um, perspectives, very um, much kind of a, um, like a goldfish in a, in, um, and this close-upness is also seen in this small monitor, um, it, which is very different from these very expansive screens here. But in relation to this very large projection of Douglas Gordon, I wanted to introduce you to Sebrin, whose work here, Neither There Nor There, is, um, is installed here with two monitors. And this is kind of a an horizontal digital hourglass of um, the artist self-portrait. Do you want to talk about the work? Um, sure, sure. Hi. Um, it's, a, it's a relatively simple gesture. And it was executed when I was an artist in residence um, in Amsterdam in 2005. And I, I guess, I mean, there's not too much more to say about it. Um, it's a, it's a real-time computer program. So unlike probably most of the works in the show, which are videos which repeat or have a loop, this has a loop within its structural dynamics, but it's running constantly, continuously in real time. So there's, um, there's a logic 
um, that is encoded by a program that I wrote that migrates my pixels one at a time from and to each of the two monitors. So it's creating kind of like an interlacing effect and interlacing is sort of like a, a it relates to uh, early early electronic video, which was the kind of the first electronic image, um, which is very different than digital video, um, because early electronic video basically had two fields for each image, which were continuously traded out. So, kind of almost like film in early video, you were always only seeing 50% of the picture. Um, and as we all know, when we're sitting in a movie theater, we're also only seeing 50% um, of the time. Half of the time we spend in a movie theater is in complete darkness. Um, so I guess a, a lot of those ideas informed the piece, um, admittedly um, subconsciously. That said, yeah, uh, so I'm on my cell phone in my studio and kind of neither there in my studio or really on my cell phone um, or here. Um, in, in, in before us. Um, so that's where the title comes from. It's neither there nor there, not here nor there. Um, uh, any questions or anything? It's very wide ranging. This is, um, this is, it's pretty indicative of a particular period in my work um, that concentrated a lot on screen-based. Um, installations. Um, a lot of the early work of mine was screen-based, often using real-time data called from the internet. Um, since then, that work has sort of evolved and migrated into um, abstraction pretty, pretty, pretty significantly. And now I'm writing um, algorithms, which is, this is really a very simple algorithm, right? It's this closed loop that just simply trades pixels along, but I've, I've gone on to investigate um, algorithmically controlling the pixel um, to a, a point now where I'm rendering very, very high resolution images of abstract paintings that don't exist. So I'm making, um, yeah, a and I make them by the thousands. <laughs> Um, you know, um, sort of creating all the all the physics and all the models of the physics, sort of like by hand through my own sort of um, trial and error. Thanks. Thanks, Supran. Um, yeah, I mean, this this work is really evocative of. I mean, this was the finale for actually the cinema effect this piece and so we're really happy to have this back um, in this show um, and as you know you mentioned this um, uh, di you know disjunction between the time in which it was made was 2005 so the technology has really changed and um, there is this kind of um, development recently of post-internet um, art and um, we were just talking about it earlier and the ways in which um, artists not necessarily working um, well the way that we've been the society has been changed with um, this affect of um, the web and social media and um, kind of multiple screens and um, you know Im imagery and how um, our internet state of mind has has affected the way that we see the world and so um, I feel like this is, you know, a great example of some of that work. Okay, let's move on.
So we're just passing through Guido van der Verve, which is the piece that I mentioned earlier, um, where the artist is traveling to the North Pole. And so rotating against the Earth. So we'll go um, pass through to Hans-Peter Feldman. So this is uh, Hans-Peter Feldman, who is probably the oldest artist in this show and also um, taking this idea of moving image to a much more um, three-dimensional uh, level. This, this is um, called shadow play and it's inspired by the old German tradition of art of paper cutting or Scherenschnitte. And these are all found objects that, um, you know, Peter, uh, Feldman is very interested in, um, is not interested in the original, but in always in kind of these endless um, um, editions and copies. And um, you see these, uh, I mean, part of the, the aim for this work, it was that um, it can be installed anywhere. Um, but always there's a local dimension to the work. And so in this case, um, the artist's son actually was here and um, went with my co-curator, Kelly Gordon, to um, uh, salvage or go, go kind of hunting for different um, pieces. And so there's some little like play cards and, um, and the important part was that these works or these objects were almost um, things that people would want to throw away. So no, nothing that is too precious. Um, and so you have these, um, even the pr process of like these water bottles or these paper um, towel holders is all part of the experience of the piece. But what's really interesting is the way in which the um, shadows really are projected, the, the shift in scale that happens um, from this very intimate um, turning of the objects from the tables onto the wall. And, um, and it creates this sort of enchanted um, escape. And so um, one gets lost when while looking at this, this piece. And so um, this was part of our um, aim towards a different kind of atemporality or non-time, dreamlike time. Okay, so this is a work by Clemens von Wedemeyer, who's here. Um, called After Image, and it was debuted in Rome. And um, I'll have Clemens talk about the work, but um, it was actually part of a suite of uh, works, multi-part, right? Three um, in uh, Rome called Cast. And so there's this play on um, actors. This is part of the Cinecita, um studio props from that were made um, to be filmed in the old kind of um, films of Hollywood films um, in the 50s um, and Italian films as well as, um, well, you could talk about it. <laughs> Actually, I shouldn't. I try to. So um, uh, this place is kind of disappearing because um, it's it's run by the family De Angelis. Uh, the company is called China Ars in um, in Chinachita. They run uh, this place for around 80 years since the beginning of Italian cinema, and they were producing sculptures and props for for the film industry. Um, 
now the Chinachita holding, the, the company kind of wants to get rid of them, uh, wants to build a parking lot there. Um, and all the props are private. Some are in the museum of Chinichita, but in a way this is kind of the, the real museum of um, um, Italian film history. And also American film industry, because Ben-Hur, uh, Cleopatra and many other Sandal films were shot there. Um, I wanted to work with this place when I first saw it uh, last, um, last year. And I decided not to shoot a, a film on film in this place, because in a way I wanted to not um, fall into the trap of um, too much romanticism. Um, and so I decided to scan the whole workshop into a digital file with a company that helped me doing it. Yeah, maybe you need to see, have some time to actually see it. The best spot is to, to stand here and to look uh, more or less to the front because then you get this kind of three-dimensional um, effect. So the, we scanned the whole workshop into a digital file and then we made a virtual camera walk through the data which resembles kind of a real Steadicam or uh, cameraman walking around. The scanning, it's a, it's a kind of a, panorama, a panoramic scanner on a tripod which you place and then it scans around you. Um, it scans, it produces shadows, so for, uh, if you put it there uh, you cannot scan what's here, so you have to um, have several different positions and then the, the image, the virtual image is, is stitched together like in a panoramic photo. Um, so here for example you see the, the data, you see the file from outside um, and then as we approach with this kind of ghost that is walking around, um, we are getting into the, the interior of the data. This walk, of course, is completely artificial. The data could also be turned into a computer game or um, be the source of any other three-dimensional play. Um, the sound is a um, cinematic sound um, which was made afterwards in sound design. The, the colors are scanned as well in a, in a process where the geometry is stitched with the um, color information. Well, that's a technical question, but um, the computer program helps doing this. Yeah. Of course, all the sculptures are totally mixed together from, from um, there, like there's a Mussolini bust uh, aside from a Jesus and um, a Buddha beside uh, whatever. So it's kind of an interesting mix here in this place. It's more religious sculptures. And when, you, when we go into the next space, um, you see the lamps of Pasolini's film Salo uh, hanging at the, on the ceiling. So every sculpture has kind of a, has a history to a certain film.
And one thing that fascinates me is the way in which, you know, Clemens preserves um, the history, materiality of uh, this, of Chinachita, but um, in a way, through the um, very kind of computer-generated, you know, um, post-production process, the this digital um, uh, technology that has kind of um, put the studios out of um, business too. So, um, you know, pre presenting these um, these technologies in a very um, fruitful way. Yeah, and important for me is the, the this idea of the subjective view or POV shot, where you, um, as a spectator, arrive walking, and then you could kind of walk further into the image, and um, but you don't, you cannot really connect to the body, which is kind of depicted in the in the movement. So that that's something that interested me as well. Thank you. Okay, so this is uh, David Clairbeau's travel. He's standing right next to me. And um, because of the sound, I think it's gonna be a little bit difficult, but um, anyway, this work has been, is, you know, 17 years. Um, the inspiration was from music, this th very kind of therapeutic um, music that you see, and everything actually is uh, created with a digital, um, is digitally constructed here. Um, it's actually not from any source of uh, photographs, but it's very much with this very pr uh, painterly precision. And um, you go through this like kind of invisible journey um, into different uh, uh, landscapes of the forest and um, the and it's it's you it's a way in which you really get lost in terms of time. So if you want, um, I'd love to take it over to David. I'll try and compete with the music in a moment. Um, so, as Mika said, the the piece started uh, with um, a piece of music that I had lingering in, in my collection for a long time, and. Um, I thought it was particularly bad music, but also rather interesting music in the sense that it provoked always these very clear images, um, which leave no doubt to where you are and where you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to relax and fall asleep. And the moment somebody tells you how to do things, you of course want to do, or I at least I want to do the opposite. Um, and with the images, uh, many years later, when I embarked on the construction of the images, I in fact um, went along with the music quite extensively. So I basically did nothing else than construct the images that would could belong to the mental images of the music. And the clue really lies at the end of the film, when um, when there's a a discordance between um, the space in the forest and the space in the music. And every everything you see is um, sorry to be so brutal as to interrupt into the music, but everything you see is uh, animated uh, by, in fact, by hand. It's hand drawn and hand animated. There's no photography, no camera. It just looks like uh, a forest. But when you when you look at it uh, closely, of course, you see it's generic. Uh, most of the images are thought images rather than filmed images, and they're cliches of forest rather than real forest. 
predictably this is the moment where you are relaxing in fact usually the installation um, it has several um, how do you say it sleeping back sitting bags uh, sitting bags, yeah, sleeping bags, where you're in fact supposed to fall asleep and relax. And at this point, I've added this image where the camera floats above the scene instead of instead of walking through it. And there are two reasons why I waited such a long time, 18 years, to produce the work. The first is the most obvious. I was afraid that the music was going to be the, mean the end of my career. People were not going to um, accept that I um, use this type of soundtrack, so I was a little bit hesitant. And the second was, of course, the technical difficulties. Whenever I did um, researches and whenever I did tests in real forest, I, I came back not satisfied with what I had uh, on camera. It was too specific. And so, when the moment technology al allowed uh, me to embark upon uh, an entire 3D animated scene, um, it's, this is precisely what I did, and we did that with a team of six people over a period of three years. If, if I had known in advance how much this water scene would cost me to produce, <coughs> I would surely have recorded it in a different way. <laughs> Unhappy, maybe an audience would be unhappy with the music. Could you tell us something about um, your other work and how this relates or doesn't relate? Um, I, I avoid sound as much as I can because I um, sound is. I always experience it, especially in uh, when you have group exhibitions as fighting um, elements. You, this is the thing that's most difficult to contain, of course. So only on the condition that my sound does not interrupt with other people's pieces too much, um, I agree on, on showing it. And, and, but this music, of course, has um, it's cinematic. It's a very simple cinematic sound. And um, this is the only piece that I've made that, I, that can be shown on film festivals occasionally. None of the other works that I've done um, could be shown on, uh, in festivals. You, um, you mentioned that you call this generic landscape. I think the landscapes will always have something generic, uh, whether it's in Brazil, shown in Brazil, or in or here, or in Europe. And there are also there's a there's a synthetic quality to the image, um, which is uh, which is essentially just a counterpart of the music. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Specific structures. What, is, what are these structures you've built? Are like a water tower or something? Yeah, they are actually they are uh, taken from 
I'd say they're inspired from from found photographs often, yeah, which corresponded to the mental image. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, everyone. So we're going to um, move forward to platform. What, well, here, what you're passing by is um, Ayelisa Attila, Finnish artist, who has captured a very gigantic spruce tree from um, multiple platforms um, following the altitude of this tree. And it's basically capturing an impossible perspective, which is um, you know six different camera platforms of one singular tree that is oriented or horizontally here. And um, you have this kind of gentle sway that um, you know creates, and you'll see also the human figure um, to the uh, in the first left-hand uh, projection. You can feel the, mon the monumentality of the tree as well. So after these very much uh, meditative, slow um, forms, I wanted to also have you experience the different kind of landscape, the, this Tus Tuscan landscape, which is featured in flat form in the next gallery. So this work, Cannot Be Anything Against the Wind, is um, from this artist collective platform. And here we have Roberto Taroni and Anna Marina Martena here to speak a bit about the uh, process of the work. But it's basically a 60 kilometer uh, mosaic of um, a landscape that is, sh is constantly shifting. Uh, well, we have shot this uh the um, the images of this uh, video in uh, 60 kilometers, so something like uh, 40 miles, in the middle part of uh, Italy. And uh, so we started uh, from a, a, a place very close to the sea, and then we have gone through the hills uh, around the place, and we decided uh, to use uh, uh, only parts uh, of the of the of every take, um, uh, just uh, to create layers, different layers of uh, an impossible, impossible um, landscape, and so we have uh, post-produced uh, using uh, uh, every layer and uh, the sky as a blue screen, as a green screen. So uh, every part of different landscapes uh, uh, were put together and create a new landscape. And this is a part of, uh, of um, a work that we do on landscape from some years, from 2007. And uh, because we, 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 we believe that landscape can give back to us uh, the complexity of uh, our time and the complexity of uh, the perceiving of the reality. And so we want to create uh, 
just a question. So what is uh, exactly reality and what is the otherwise of the reality that we see? And so we have used uh, um, every layer of this uh, different landscape of the 60 kilometers um, uh, has notes uh, of a possible score as a musical score, but just uh, image score. And uh, in our work, the relationship with the music uh, as a, a, a conceptual uh, uh, thing is uh, very, very, very important, I th we think. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and we like very much that uh, people laugh because there's a humor inside the reality. I mean, we have to see that, yeah. And exactly for ourselves, well, really a surprise every time to, to put together the different uh, levels and, uh, and to have uh, the, a character that has uh, the most important character that is the wind. Chance was the hang glider a chance, or was um, was did you intentionally have that? Uh, well, no, was not intentional. Well, was immediately intentional when we have seen and we have shot immediately on the. So we just in a in a second we have decided okay we have to shot to shoot, but was uh, unintentional at the beginning. Then became a very important part uh, to create the reverse part when. Uh, you go back as a rewind of the Yes, we wanted to, well, the, another thing uh, quite important uh, is the work on the perspective. Uh, so we, we started uh, uh, from the idea of landscape also in the historical painting, is Italian historical painting. So we have used this uh, uh, landscape because it's uh, typical of, the, of that uh, 16th, uh, 15th, 16th century. And, but we haven't used that as the perspective, the normal perspective, that we have the first plane and then you have back and then you have back and then you have back. You are always uh, in focus so, and you have uh, something that is a little bit uh, flat in a way and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and this deepness uh, is created by your idea that you have uh, of looking into a landscape is a mental in a way. Questions? So this, there is this um, unhierarchical notion of the landscape where it's you know going against perspectival landscape, and then also. Um, this relativity of um, the figure ground relationships kind of shifting from underneath your feet. Okay. Anyone questions? Well, we can take some more at the end. So uh, we're approaching the two more. This is um, David Clairbeau's rocking chair which is a two-sided projection um, that is interactive or reactive. 
um, in which you can see an old woman who's rocking slowly in her chair, um, watching her life kind of um, go by. And um, this is using what Clairbo has called um, omnidirectional narrative in, in, in that there is um, still images of the shadow and the light is actually still and then the only kind of moving part that you see is the um, the old late the old lady who is in the rocking chair and as you walk um, around you you'll have the the woman actually stops and then as you pass he, um, she she keeps going but um, I'll have David comment am I glad that this is a silent piece this time this is an early work it's uh, 14 years old and I made it in my studio in Berlin. We uh, basically faked a, a, a porch that could come out of any American settings, not very European. But the essence of the image is um, that it's an inside and an outside uh, picture on both sides of the screen. And I wouldn't exactly call it interactive, it's more simply reactive. If a lonely person, lonesome person passes by, then the lady is actually going to pay attention. But when there's a lot of people, um, she'll just look every now and then as you pass by. And it's um, when I had the idea um, thinking about the non-communication between the screen and the onlooker. That there's in fact no, we shouldn't be looking for interactivity with the screen which is really a dumb thing to do always, as well in virtual reality as in life. And so the encounter is, um, the encounter fails in a way when you pass by. She's a little bit like a guardian. This is probably why I asked it to be a heavy person sitting in front of a narrow entrance. And you're almost obliged to go past her. And the moment you do, you look from her back towards the scene where you've been standing a moment ago and then you see a landscape. So both for herself, we don't matter. And um, for us, she doesn't matter really. So it's about a failed encounter. Very simple visual exercise on how, how communication between screen and, and, and figure um, is impossible. So we have one final piece by Matthew Weinstein in the ambulatory, which I'd like to um, take you all to. Okay, so this is our final piece, uh, Cruising 1980. Um, which is actually a, from a th the 1980 thriller, um, which starring Al Pacino. Um, but Basically, Matthew takes this um, into a very different dimension of two ships passing in the night, um, playing with that pun. And so I'm gonna have him discuss the work and the process as well. Um, yeah, I was thinking today that uh, uh, apparently Rembrandt you know, ruined himself financially by buying um, trinkets and shiny things, um, pieces of brocade fabric. And I was thinking about um, the idea of kitsch, which I don't like because I think it implies judgment. And I have a habit of buying, you know, basically decorative objects which are, you know, our, our future landfill. And I find that there's something uh, not just attractive but kind of poignant 
about these sort of despised objects. And uh, every once in a while, I'll buy a couple, I'll put them on my shelf, and they leak out some kind of meaning, and, and usually I end up giving them away. But some of them end up uh, suggesting a piece to me. So I bought these two ships, and I had them facing each other on a shelf, and I realized that they had this human quality. They were in sync with each other, um, and they were cruising, and then I thought of the film, this, uh, which was the first film uh, that ever depicted gay life. Uh, not one aspect of gay life, which was this gay cruising scene in New York, where Al Pacino, as heterosexual, goes undercover as a gay man to stop a killer of gay men. And cruising also happened in 1980, and a few years later, the AIDS crisis came along, and there was no more programming in Hollywood that ever featured a gay person in a positive light until about five years ago. So I thought about the sense of, of time lost, uh, of people who died, and I thought about the pun of boats cruising, people cruising, and the film uh, cruising. It's like three-way pun. So then I just thought, if I just focus on these ships, most of my animations have talking and uh, full developed characters and kind of cabaret numbers. And this is the first one I did that was just one uh, single idea. And when I first uh, discovered, uh, I, was, I, I make painting and sculpture, when I first discovered computer animation, uh, when I first saw Toy Story, and I thought, you know, I have to know what, what this is, because it seemed profound. Not the movie, but the technology seemed inherently profound. So I stopped showing, I stopped making art, and I went and I, I went very far away from the art world to learn this technology and also to work in entertainment and commercial film for a while. Uh, to um, really see uh, what the entertainment industry was before I decided to bring it back into the art world as a form of critique. Um, and the thing that interested me about computer animation was it's inherently academic in that you are working with perspective and all these pre-modern forms of art. So as a way to bypass modernism altogether and end up in this new place where I could then bring something into the art world that had very little to do with the history of uh, contemporary art. So it's like confronting contemporary art with a kind of like Renaissance or 19th century idea of um, mathematics implied over nature or mathematics used to describe nature. And it's all, there's no, you know, it's no photography, it's all, it's all CGI, so the water is, uh, it's all invented. Um, the boats exist in actuality, but these are sort of like, um, I guess it's a virtual sculpture of the actual object, and the actual objects are, no longer exist, because to make the thing, we have to sort of take them apart, examine every piece of them, and then, uh, then put them back together uh, in this virtual format. And now they exist as objects in a totally conceptual space because I can use them in different films and they're, I can rotate them, I can relight them, I can put them in different situations. They exist as objects in my repertoire of objects, but they no longer exist as physical objects. Um, I don't scan because when you scan, it's, like a it's boring and technical, but it, like you, uh, you saw in the other film, it triangulates things, and often I like to animate things, and you have to have a, a more symmetrical model, so it ends up being a lot more complicated, because we actually have to sort of build each tiny piece and put them together. I work a lot with um, actual characters, like in the Disney model of like a talking fish, or, or, or you know, sort of 
you know, really like taking the Hollywood model or, and the Disney model and then sort of sliding it into the art world and sort of making people look at this stuff seriously. Um, uh, so I, we, we, I used to scan, when I first started doing it, I was doing still images and scanning worked because I didn't have to uh, manipulate them. I, I work with different musicians. This is done by a band called Balkan Beatbox, and I'd done a longer uh, piece with them where they'd written about four songs for a piece, and then this was some intro music they'd written uh, for a piece. So I reused the intro music uh, for the ships because it had this clock ticking in it, which is actually uh, snapping. Excellent. Thank you so much, Matthew. Um, I think this concludes, unless we have um, more questions, this concludes our Friday Gallery talk. Thank you, everyone.